First Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse one, read it with me. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. This epistle by Paul to Timothy requires at least a little introduction. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, who happened to be in Ephesus. Many conservative scholars place the writing of this little epistle between 64 and 65 AD. You have to understand that at this particular moment in history, Rome is in turmoil and there are growing, growing sentiments of revolution that are about to take place in, Jer in Jerusalem and in Judea. Scholars suggest that Paul may have written these instructions almost after his first imprisonment, but between a first and second imprisonment. So some scholars think that he might have been in Rome. Others think that he may have been in Macedonia proper or in Philippi specifically, but he's somewhere either in Rome or the Macedonia region prior to yet another arrest and another journey which will mean that he will eventually find himself imprisoned in Rome again. Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to provide guidance, instruction, encouragement to Timothy, a young leader. Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to promote godliness and sound doctrine and to confront a growing group of false teachers who had made their way into the church in Ephesus and its environs in chapter 3, verse 14, and chapter 4, verse 13. We thank God for this priceless piece of precious instruction on practical godliness pastoral care. Some of the key phrases in the letter are, I'm not ashamed, suffer hardship, endure, word, charge, diligence. By the way, that phrase charge is also translated commandment. And it's going to appear in verse 3. In verse 5, in verse 18, in chapter 4, verse 11, in chapter 5, verse 7, in chapter 6, verse 13, and then again in verse 17, charge. The word charge was a military term. It meant to pass down the line. Almost like in our culture, if you think of a bucket brigade where a house is on fire and you hand the bucket of water and they hand it off and they hand it off and they hand it off until you can throw it on the burning building. The Lord Jesus Christ entrusts Paul 
with the gospel in chapter 1, verse 11. If you see, it says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Paul is now entrusting this gospel to Timothy, who is to entrust it with godly men and women. He's entrusting to them a sacred treasure. And so Paul is going to use another military term in this particular book or little booklet. It's the phrase occasion. We think of that word as an appropriate time. But in the military sense, it meant the place or the base of operation. It's the ministry headquarters. It's the place that you use as the launching point in order to provide ministry to the community in which you're living in and the world in which you have been charged with bringing the gospel. And so, in a, in a sense, this is so cool because this is what we've tried to be, a base of operation, a launching point of outreach. And he's going to talk about that later on in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. So the theme of this book is summarized in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And if you are a person who takes notes or jots things down, this is something that you should be aware of. And you should turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, because this reoccurring theme is something that we're going to have to talk about over and over again. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul will write, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Now we get the theme. If I'm delayed, Paul is in a place where he desperately wants to make it back to Ephesus. He wants to make it back and be a part of this church and a part of the congregation and a part of the life of it. But he says, but if I'm delayed... I need you to know something. I need you to know how you're to act among one another. I need to be able to remind you of how you should conduct yourselves. The ministry that's been entrusted to you. You know what I've discovered? Churches typically do not fail because of belief systems. I mean, all of us can recite perhaps the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We, we say that we believe in Jesus and we believe in the Holy Spirit and we, we believe in the gospel. We can reiterate, we can translate, we can talk about what we believe about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But most churches fail because people don't get along with each other. Because they say and do hurtful things to one another. And so Paul wants to make it certain that everyone understands how Christians are to conduct themselves in Christ's church. And that's why I'm calling this series 
Christian conduct in Christ's church. Those are four C's. And most of you know what C4 is. It's an explosive. It's a plastic explosive that you use to detonate, to blow up stuff. I don't want to blow up the church. But I do want to blow up your heart. I want you to explode with this information. I wanted to create the grounds of a transformation that will carry you into a future. I'd like to think that I'll be with you. But we never know, do we? We never know what's going to happen at any given moment. What manner of men and women ought we to be? How are we to conduct ourselves amongst ourselves? We might think of this letter as a how-to book for the young pastor and the church. We might think of this as a how-to book of how to have church. Paul writes remarkably that the church, the local church, is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground. That means foundation of the truth. The church, by the way, has fallen out of great favor in the popular culture. In the list of things to do for whatever reason, a lot of people put church at the end of the list. And so people will often find reasons to neglect corporate worship, to neglect community, to disregard authority, to abuse privileges. So Paul is going to address such diverse issues as false teachers and false teaching. He's going to emphasize sound doctrine in verse 3 of chapter 1. 3 through 11, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. And so throughout this ministry, throughout the ministry since I have been here, since the first study and the first Sunday that we've ever had, it's always been important to me that you know what the Bible says about the most important issues of life and about the most important issues of faith. So Paul is going to once again remind Timothy, please, the church began with sound doctrine. It has to continue with sound doctrine. Paul is also going to address the topic of public worship in chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. And since the church is the place that promotes worship and the necessity and the centrality of prayer, Paul is going to address the conduct also of women. Apparently, evidently, some women were disrupting the service. With all of these issues, Paul's goal is unity. So Paul is going to take seriously the destructive damage that's done by division when people aren't on the same page, going in the same direction, sharing the same heart. Paul reminds Timothy that sincere devotion to the Lord trumps tradition and even social interaction. What do I mean by that? It means 
that we do things because we're motivated by our love for and commitment to Christ. That means that sometimes we have to say hard things or do hard things. Paul's other concerns include church leadership in chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. And then he's going to talk about what it means to be a caring church in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, and chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And so this should prompt each and every one of you to ask and answer this question. Why do I even go to this church? What is it that I want from church? Do I want a place where I know that the gospel will be preached? Do I want a place where I know that essential Christianity will not be compromised? Do I want a church where I, I can go to that I know that in, in a crisis, in a difficulty, in some sort of horrible and terrible circumstance that there's going to be loving, caring men and women who can provide comfort and support and encouragement to one another? In short, Paul is going to address the discipline of sound doctrine in chapter 1, the discipline of prayer and public worship in chapter 2, the discipline of church leadership or church government in chapter 3, the discipline of the local pastor in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. I think you know that the church... can always be better, but it'll never be worse than the pastor. And that's why it's been so important to me to do what's right, to say what's right, to act with integrity and clarity of conscience. Paul wants to encourage Timothy in his God-given ministry. And so again, he's going to promote false doctrine. He's going to warn against false teachers and false doctrine. He's going to remind Timothy of what constitutes the qualifications for leaders and leadership and how we ought to behave, how we ought to conduct ourselves amongst ourselves. And Paul, Paul loves this church and its leaders. In the book of Acts, he spends at least two years in their presence, and when he's getting ready to leave, they literally fall on each other and hug one another and weep for one another. He literally poured out his heart to this most famous church. And I've poured out my heart to you, shed my blood for you, ministered throughout the growing years of my young family. I love this church. I love your church. And so it's really important to me that this church retain those things that we've come to know and love. And so Paul begins his ministry 
with his call and credentials. Look at verse 1. It says, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. He begins with his own call and credentials. You'll remember in our culture when we typically write a letter back in the olden days, for those of you who used to write letters, you remember you would say, Dear John. And then you would sign it, Sincerely, your dad. (laughs) In our modern culture, however, with the incredible invention of email, we can do what they did in the ancient world. When you get an email, you know immediately who it's from. From you to whoever it is that you're writing to. Paul identifies himself as, look what it says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle means one who is sent by another. It's the Greek word apostolos, so it can mean one of several things, one who is sent. It can also mean sent specifically by someone in mind. So the apostle is therefore one who in part represents another, sent by another. And in this case, Paul says, I didn't just show up on my own. Jesus sent me. And the reason why I want to bring this to your attention, some of you may or may not know how this church ever began. How did you wind up in Denver? How did you wind up in Littleton? I was an assistant pastor at Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque, and we were looking at this particular area, and Skip Heitzig said, we need to send someone to here. So in one sense, I'm sent by a church, But then again, remember, I have to pray and prepare with my wife and with my family and and ask and answer the question, Lord, where do you want me to go? What is it that you want me to do? And again, we should briefly note that the one sent in this particular case belongs to the sender, is commissioned by the sender, possesses in part the ability and the authority and the power of the sender. So when Paul says, I, Paul, an apostle by Jesus Christ, he has been coming into their midst. Does he have all of the power and authority of Jesus? No. But does he have some power and authority? The answer is yes. What power and authority does he have? The power and authority that's been given to him by Jesus. And what is that power and authority? It's the power and the authority to say, do you realize that what the Bible says, or in his case, he's sent by Jesus, what Jesus has said to him about life and about love, about the forgiveness of sins and hope. In other words, Paul is sent with a message and the message is, guess what? Your sins can really be forgiven. You can experience the grace and the mercy and the peace of God. Hey, guess what? If you'll trust Jesus as your savior, your heart can be cleansed and your life could be changed. He's not saying that because he's making it up out of whole cloth. He's saying it because that is the gospel. God sent his son into the world. Jesus said to the apostles, as the father has sent me, I send you. In what? In truth, in power. 
So what is Paul's claim? He's claiming that he's an apostle by the command of God. By the way, that word command, epitagen, it means one under order or to place in a position of obligation. In the military, a superior officer may say to a subordinate, you have your orders, carry them out. Paul has his orders from Jesus. What are his orders? Go to the Gentiles, give them the gospel. What are his orders? Tell them the truth about the gospel. What are his orders? To remind them to love each other. <laughs> what are his orders? The sum and the substance of his orders are to do what God has asked him to do. And so the word command carries with it the idea of obligation, compulsion, force, necessity. Paul will say, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. My pastor told me a long time ago, if you can do anything else, do it. Do, do, look, sell cars. Work for the Department of Social Services. Do anything, do anything other than this. Why? Because it isn't as glamorous as it looks. I know what some of you are thinking. I would love to have your job. You work for two hours on Sunday and then you're done. Yeah. If you ever have the hankering, just spend a week with me. Spend one week with me. From the time I get up to the time I go to bed, Monday through Friday. The word command, like I said, not only carries the idea of compulsion and force and necessity, but it reminds us of how Paul came by this title. Paul claims his calling and authority comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Note what he doesn't say, that my calling and authority comes from Peter and James and John. It isn't just an apostolic authority in the sense that it's been conferred to him. Now you should, again, pause and ask yourself this question as you're looking at the text. Why does Paul announce what Timothy already knows? It's interesting to me. Very few people have ever come up to me in church and said, who made you the pastor? How in the world did you get that job? When you're the founding pastor and you start a Bible study and people come and then they keep coming and then they come over the years and one year turns into two years and two years turns into 10 years and 20 years, even after a while, even you guys get, oh, yeah, he's the pastor, what can we say? How do you get to be the pastor and why do you even, why do you even know this or, or say this or, or, or what makes you the pastor? 
In Paul's apostolic letter, he invites, I'm going to suggest to you, the whole church to listen and respond to what Paul is saying to Timothy. In other words, he's using these terms not in order to convince Timothy concerning his apostolic authority or his right to preach or his right to even impart this information. But you should look at the text. You should say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What gives Paul the right to make a blanket doctrinal statement about the role of leaders, about believers, and and about how they're to conduct themselves with one another? And what's the role in the relationship between men and women and, and servants and masters? Hey, that's a fair question. Paul's answer includes the fact that he's been sent by God with the commandment from the Lord Jesus Christ. So what gives me the right to say anything to you at all? What gives Jonathan the the right to say anything? What gives anyone the right to say anything to anyone about anything? And guess what? I am usurping my authority and going beyond my bounds when I make suggestions to you that aren't included in the passages of the scripture. It doesn't make sense to me that people should presume authority and ability except those authorities and abilities that have been entrusted to them. Do you know why I can say to you with complete confidence that you should turn from your sin and turn to the Savior? Because Jesus said so. Do you know why I can say with complete confidence that the way of the transgressor is hard? Not simply because the Bible says so, but because I know so. Have you ever found out something the hard way? You probably know that there's an easy way and that there's a hard way. And wouldn't it be nice if we learned the easy way? And so, Paul calls God our Savior. Look at that in verse 1. He calls Jesus our hope. Clearly, Savior is a title of God. God is the first source of salvation. Salvation is impossible apart from the God of the Bible. Jesus tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in John chapter 3 verse 16. Last week, Louis Farrakhan to a group of people in Chicago said, God doesn't love you and Jesus didn't come to die for your sins and he's a liar. God does love you. God sent his son Jesus in the world to die for you. You see, I can speak with authority and conviction concerning what God has said about himself and what the Bible says about salvation. If God didn't love us, we wouldn't be saved. We're people condemned by sin. We need a savior. We've rebelled against God. We've been sentenced to death by our sin. We are now subject to God's wrath and God's punishment and God's judgment. And so God sends Jesus into the world to be our hope. 
Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Paul is driven by God to present Jesus to the broken world. That's why elsewhere he said, we warn people everywhere. We present them to Christ. Paul must preach the glorious message of salvation and hope. Mary, when she learns that she's going to carry the Messiah, exclaims in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Later, Paul will write in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, unquote. In other words, the sum and the substance of everything that's been said concerning our condition and God's promise is going to unfold exactly like the Bible says. The minister's credentials must include being called by God with God's message. If you're not called by God and you don't have the message of God, and remember what he's talking about here, the message is God is the source of salvation. Jesus is the instrument of hope. Pause. If somebody gives you any other message, you should go, hmm, that message is suspect. You can trust your leader when they say, God is the source of salvation. Jesus is hope. Now, I want you to think about this. If the minister doesn't have a message of salvation with God as the source of salvation and Jesus as the instrument of hope, he's probably not a very good minister. What is it exactly that human beings are hoping for? Again, some think it's recognition, some think it's security or acceptance, some think it's esteem or victory over trials. But what of the person who dares to hope for forgiveness of sin, for cleansing of the heart, for eternal life in Christ? The very fact that a person hopes implies the need for something that they don't inherently possess. And you have heard me repeatedly say there are two kinds of people in the world, Italian people and people who wish they were. No, that's not the two kinds of people. The two kinds of people are those who have hope and those who need hope. And you are represented here this morning. You are a person who has hope. Or you're a person who needs hope. And so that's what Paul is going to do. Jesus is our hope. Paul told the Colossians in chapter 1 verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the early church, Jesus carried many titles, including Christ our hope. 
William Barclay writes, quote, Ignatius of Antioch, when he was on his way to execution in Rome, writes to the church in Ephesus, quote, Be of good cheer in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, our common hope. Polycarp writes, quote, Let us therefore persevere in our hope and the earnest of our righteousness, which is the down payment, who is Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is the down payment that's been given to us so that we can with excitement and joy say, I have a right relationship with God. Based on what? Based on my relationship with Christ. And so look at the disciples' privilege in, in verse 2. To Timothy, a true son in the faith. Paul writes to Timothy, but clearly he intends his letter to be heard by everyone in Ephesus. This is going to go out to the entire community in the region. Paul doesn't simply anoint or appoint Timothy as a bishop or overseer or pastor over the church in Ephesus, but he's going to entrust Timothy to serve as Paul's representative in the region. And you might, again, rightfully say, how do you know that? How, how could you possibly know that? Well, because I've read the letter. Not just twice, not just three times. Because in this letter, Paul is going to instruct Timothy. Think about it for just a moment. He's going to say, Timothy, this is the order of public worship. Timothy, this is how we appoint church officers, bishops, and deacons. Timothy, this is how you confront apostasy. Timothy, this is how you guide in the disciplines of public and corporate worship. Timothy, these are the instructions that you give to leaders, both men and women. Timothy, this is how you confront apostasy. Timothy, this is what sound doctrine looks like. Timothy, this is what you have to do if personal holiness is going to have to be an important part of your life. Paul's instructions include how to maintain good relations with local congregations, how to exercise compassion and sympathy towards widows. What is the relationship between slaves and masters? How in the world is he going to have all of this stuff unless he really believes he can impart this stuff to Timothy and for good reason? And what do we know about our friend Timothy? We know he was born in Lystra. You may or may not know, but Lystra was a Roman colony. It was founded that way in B.C. 6, which, which means right around the time that Jesus was being born, the Romans invested Lystra with, with the ability to be a sovereign municipality. That was, it was incorporated later into the Roman province that's known as Galatea, and we have the word Galatians from that. And so Paul visits this place, Lystra, in 48 AD and then again in 51 AD. This was during Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 and then again on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15. So Timothy's mother Eunice and grandmother Lois were devout Jews who came to faith in Jesus. And by the way, the name Lois means better. Lois can also mean favored. It would seem that Timothy's father was a Greek. 
And we have no evidence that he was either a proselyte to Judaism or a convert to Christianity since Timothy remained uncircumcised in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. If his father had been brought into the, into the Jewish fellowship, almost certainly Timothy would have been circumcised. Paul will circumcise Timothy in order to avoid unnecessary problems with the local Jewish leaders and ordain Timothy to the ministry. So, was his father a pagan? Abusive? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It's a mystery. Paul says in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek, unquote. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Before Timothy begins his travels with Paul, he submits to the painful act of circumcision. Jonathan may not want you to know all of this stuff. But the very first human being to touch him other than his mother is me. I mean, there's the doctor, there's the nurse, but they put me at the catcher's position. <laughs> I was the first person to touch him. I was the first person to snap that umbilical cord. He has been with me through some of the most painful times in his life. I want you to, again, think about it. Since Timothy comes to faith, his mother and his grandmother teach him the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.15. Apparently, he's very open to the gospel because when Paul preaches at Lystra in Acts chapter 14, verses 6 through 7, Timothy seems to have responded. He must have demonstrated some exceptional faith and growth because Paul chooses him to become his partner in the work of ministry and the spread of the gospel during his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. And since his father is Greek and his mother is Jewish... He must have been keenly aware of the problems of growing up in a divided household. Some of you may have grown up in a world where both your mom and your dad were Christians. Maybe you grew up in a world where neither were Christians. Maybe you grew up in a world where your mother loved the Lord, but your dad could care less. Are there unique and specific challenges if moms and dads don't share the same vision, the same heart? Concerning ministry. There are. Paul calls him a true son in the faith. By the way, that word son is a tender word that was usually reserved for flesh and blood relatives. So Timothy shares Paul's philosophy of ministry. Timothy shares his views on essential doctrines. Timothy left Lystra to travel with Paul. It was at that time that Paul and Timothy established and strengthened churches in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Acts chapter 16, all the way to chapter 17, verse 14. Paul leaves Berea, goes to Athens, leaves 
both Timothy and Silas behind. Paul sends word for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible in Acts 17. Timothy joins Paul in Athens. Then he's sent to Thessaloniki to encourage the believers, <clears throat> according to 1 Thessalonians 3. Later, Timothy rejoins Paul in Corinth. He helps Paul establish the church in Corinth in Acts 18.5. The Bible doesn't say that Timothy travels with Paul from Corinth to Ephesus and then to Caesarea, Jerusalem, Antioch, and back to Ephesus in Acts chapter 18, verses 19. But we are told that Timothy works with Paul in Ephesus. Again, the book of Acts makes no mention of Timothy during his voyage to Rome in Acts 21, all the way to the end of, of Acts chapter 28, we know that either Timothy was with Paul at that time or he rejoins him at some time in Rome during the early months of his imprisonment. How do we know? Because we read about it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. And Philemon, verse 1. So what does all of this have to do with anything? What it has to do is that Timothy has accompanied Paul for years and years and years he has faced hardship and difficulty and challenge. And you know what? When you're entrusting someone with such an important task, you want to make sure that they share your heart, share your vision. Maybe even share the experiences. This is one of the reasons why it's so important for me to be able to share with you my heart and my complete confidence in the leadership of this church and the transition that we're making. It's because, guess what? Other than his mother and his brothers, Jonathan has been here since the beginning. Since the beginning. There was never a time when he wasn't a part of this church except to go out and receive instruction and in training and to, to plant God-honoring, vibrant churches on his own to demonstrate the work of the ministry. And so, Paul will ask Timothy to visit him in prison during his second imprisonment in the second letter but there is no evidence whatsoever that Timothy will actually make it back to Rome. We know that the Emperor Nero commits suicide in June of 68 AD. So we know also that Paul is executed sometime prior to that point. We also know that the writer of Hebrews at the very end of the book of Hebrews mentions Timothy in his letter. He says in Hebrews 13, 23, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released from prison, dead. We're not told. It's just that we, we think that he's released from prison because if he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. All of this to say that Paul and Timothy have this growing relationship. And so look what it says in, in verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father in Jesus Christ. Paul reminds Timothy of the grace, mercy, and peace provided by the Father through 
the Lord Jesus. Now, much could be said, but let me offer at least a few quick insights into these spiritual reserves. When he says grace, mercy, peace, the thing that I think I want you to immediately begin to understand and lay hold of is the minister and the disciple have to be the present possessor of grace and mercy and peace. You can't give to someone something that you yourself have never received. Pause for a moment. Was Paul the recipient of grace and mercy and God's peace? The answer is yes. Was Timothy a person who received the grace, the mercy, and the peace of God? Yes. Have you received God's grace and God's mercy and God's peace? The reason why this is so important, in Paul's letters, grace always precedes peace. Grace always makes peace possible. John Stott writes, quote, Grace is love that cares and stoops down and rescues. Grace has been called God's unmerited favor. It is that, but it's also so much more. Charles Finney says, quote, It is a state of mind that sees God in everything, is evidence of growth in grace and a thankful heart. Donald Swan says, The grace of God is in my mind, shaped like a key that comes from time to time and unlocks heavy doors, unquote. Grace is the thing that shows up in your life so that you can stand it that day, so that you can make it through the day. The Bible teaches that grace is that which Jesus uses to save us. The gospel itself is called the gospel of grace. We're transformed from death to life by grace, it says in John 5, 24. And the reason why the gospel is called the gospel of grace is because it proclaims God's favor to the undeserving. The Bible teaches that the grace that is in Jesus is saving grace in Ephesians 2.5. Sufficient grace in 2 Corinthians 12.9. My grace is sufficient for you. Serving grace. Let us have grace whereby we can serve God acceptably. The grace that is in Christ Jesus is also a supplying grace of his fullness we have received. Grace for grace. You can't exhaust grace. You're saved by grace. You're justified by grace, being freely justified, elected by his grace, a remnant according to the election of his grace, Romans 11.5. We labor in grace, 1 Corinthians 15.10. We grow in grace, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Guess what? A church that's absent grace is not a church that you want to belong to. And so grace should be something that's available and modeled. And mercy, look at that word mercy, Elias. Elias was the word that was used by the ancients to describe these waves of feeling that would overcome you for compassion and sympathy and 
pity and affection and kindness. That word Elias meant all of those things. It was the overwhelming feeling that you get when the grandkids show up at the doorstep. Or you see someone who's in need. Mercy is the desire to provide comfort. It's the virtue that sees need and then meets the need. Has Paul been a recipient of grace? Yes. Has he been a recipient of mercy? Yes. Have you been a recipient of mercy? Did God see the need in your life? Did he notice the hole that was right in the middle of your heart? Did he look at the wickedness and the sin that you'd participated in and said, you know what? I'll forgive you. I'll wash you. I'll cleanse you. I'll make you whole. And guess what? When the word is used as an attribute or a characteristic trait of God and Jesus, it means God's ability to see a need and meet the need according to his inexhaustible resources. You know, we don't have inexhaustible resources. But every once in a while, you see a need. It comes to your attention. And there's something inside of you that wants to meet that need. God sees our need and he feels for us and then he acts for us. He not only takes his, our sin upon himself, but then he imparts his righteousness to us. That which was unacceptable becomes acceptable. The object of wrath now becomes the object of mercy and pity and compassion. St. Chrysostom wrote, quote, Mercy imitates God and disappoints Satan. St. Augustus wrote, Two works of mercy set a man free. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. And give, and you'll receive. Mercy is both an Old and a New Testament word. It speaks in the Old Testament of God's loving kindness and protection and guidance. And in the New Testament, it speaks of God acting out. Mercy is compassion and action. Grace and mercy and peace are the minister's tools the disciples' tools to build Christ's church and God's kingdom. These are your tools in order to conduct yourselves amongst yourself. In order to conduct yourself amongst yourself, you're going to have to be the possessor of grace and mercy. And peace. That's the trio of God's blessings. Grace is love planning to bless. Mercy is love active in blessing. Peace is love enjoyed. According to the gospel, if we've experienced the grace of God and the mercy of God, we're free to walk in the peace with God. It's the peace of God and peace with God. It's a purchased peace. 
We can't earn it. We won't deserve it. We can't trade for it. We cannot demand it. The purchase price? The blood of Jesus. He's our peace. Who's broken down every wall. This is the peace that Jesus talks about in John 14, 27. That I give to you. And remains with you. Not as the world gives. It's not temporary. It's not probationary. It's not arbitrary. It's a complete peace. You'll remember that in Isaiah it says he will keep in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. So what's Paul's vision for the church? He's going to call Timothy to preach sound doctrine in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. To preach the glorious gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. He's going to ask him to defend the faith in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Later, he's going to give instructions about prayer and modesty and leadership and what it means to be a good minister, what it means to be a godly minister, what it means to be a growing minister. And then he's going to lay out instructions for the seasoned saints, for the widows and the widowers, for leaders and servants and slaves. He's going to give instructions to peacemakers and troublemakers, to the rich, to the poor, to the people who need to know more, and to the people who already know a lot. There's going to be something for everyone. Do you know what that means? There's going to be something for you. And for you. We're going to have communion here in just a moment. You might want to take the elements out. Cody's going to come up and play a song. And I'm going to pray for these elements. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thrilled to begin our new study in this little epistle of 1 Timothy. Lord, we're thrilled with its theme. How should we get along with one another? What should we do for one another? How can we minister to one another? Lord, the tools that are given to us grace and mercy and peace. Lord, we understand that we won't be able to participate in grace and mercy and peace unless we ourselves have been recipients of grace and mercy and peace. And so, Lord, even now as we have communion, Lord, as we remember what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed when he took bread and broke it and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken for you. Do this in memory of me. Again, the Bible says he gave thanks and praise. He took the cup and he passed the cup among his disciples and he said, take this and drink it, all of you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in memory of me. 
Lord, we get to participate in grace. We are the objects of your mercy. We are the ambassadors of your peace. And so, Lord, even now, as we partake of these elements, Lord, I pray that it would be once again a reaffirmation that we want to walk with you, that we want to love you, that we want to know you. Lord, we want to express our thanks for grace, for mercy, for peace. In Jesus' name.